Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today our show is all about design. Now, design, that's one of those words that can mean a whole lot of things. It can relate to fashion. There are different hoops underneath the skirts. The bell shape is not very full. The pagoda shape is very round. It can involve urban planning. We have a limited amount of money to spend, and we don't want to spend it solving the last problem. We want to spend it solving the next problem. And it can definitely play a big role in science and technology. So you can't feel it, but all the air in this room gets changed over about five times a minute. And we're going to explore all of those design realms over the next hour. But first, let's talk about design as it refers to architecture. In May of last year, Washington, D.C. lost one of its musical icons, a man who's affectionately been referred to as the godfather of go-go. Talking to the kids and the bicycle riders. Talking to the hippies and the Watergate hiders. This here is the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. Chuck Brown, a Washingtonian who was the driving force behind go-go music. Go-go is a kind of subgenre of funk with its mishmash of rhythm and blues and early hip-hop. The district is honoring Chuck Brown's musical legacy with a brand new memorial at Langdon Park in northeast D.C. The hope is to break ground this summer and complete construction by fall. Marshall Moya Design is the D.C.-based firm that's designing the Chuck Brown Music Memorial. I recently visited the site with the firm's principals, Michael Marshall and Paola Moya. And Michael, it turns out, was born and raised right here in D.C., just around the corner from Langdon Park. So this is a park that I used when I was a kid growing up and uh, attending Langdon Elementary School uh, a block away. And so this is a great project for our firm to have. Uh, it was a design competition. We won the competition. We didn't get it because I grew up in a neighborhood. But still, that's a, a, a nice benefit for me personally on this project. I notice you're holding plans in your hand. Can yes. we take a look and, and see? Yeah. Oh, wow. Can you, so, can you walk us through this? Yeah. So basically, we're, we're taking over where the existing music pavilion is here now, or at least the band shelter, I should say. And so we will have a new state-of-the-art music pavilion. So we want to line the site with cherry trees and with magnolia trees. I like to think of those as um, local D.C. landscaping trees. So it's going to be shaped similar to like a Roman amphitheater in a sense, but really, really small and intimate. Uh, It will hold 150 to 200 people. Uh, It is a space where they will bring just local artists. And at the back of the pavilion, they will have images of Chuck Brown from the beginning of his career to the end. And it will also have a tower that it will display in chronological order the music that he played and the songs that he composed when you go in through the tower. The history of his recordings we're going to use. So we also wanted to be a, a learning environment for the, the kids here in the city when they come here to see that there is a Washingtonian who basically, with other people, but developed a genre of music that became international and known as Washington Sound. I want to hear more about the, the tower, because you mentioned these, these kids who might not know who he is. So can you give us a more detailed description of what that's going to entail? 
Well, the tower, um, it's located to, when you're facing the um, the pavilion, is to the right side of, of the stage. You enter to the side and you're embraced through magnolia trees and cherry trees and you can walk underneath the tower. And at each side of the um, walls, you will have, by chronological order, the list of the music that he composed and that he played. And then on top of the tower, you will have an image of Chuck Brown, um, one of his you know, most famous uh, photographs that we will actually you know, work with uh, the photographer that took uh, these images. How tall is that tower? It will be about 40 feet tall, which is just a little bit taller than some of the houses here. Uh, we really want a marker in the neighborhood. We really want to make a sense of place in the, in the neighborhood. And uh, the tower will give us a vertical element to see it from a distance uh, because this is a very long park. And we're lucky also that we're going to add trees again to sort of make a sense of place, a sense of enclosure. And I love that they're cherry trees and magnolia trees, which are, yeah, so iconic to Washington. Yes, absolutely. Chuck Brown was iconic to Washington, so why not bring the, the same thing to the landscaping? That was Michael Marshall and Paola Moya of Marshall Moya Design, the local firm designing the Chuck Brown Music Memorial, which they hope will open up in Langdon Park later this year. To see design sketches for the Chuck Brown Music Memorial and to find a link to the official Chuck Brown website, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So it sort of kind of goes without saying that memorials like the one dedicated to Chuck Brown are designed to be noticed and appreciated. Well, not so much with the structures we'll be talking about next. As Lauren Ober tells us, these things are located all over downtown D.C., and yet they get very little love from either locals or tourists. This is a story about ballers. Ballers? You mean like basketball players who have a lot of money? No, not ballers. Bollards, with a D. Oh, bollards. I'm not sure what that means. That was Kent Finnerty taking a break from his Sunday roller hockey game outside the Treasury Building on Pennsylvania Avenue, where no one else knew what bollards were either. But Finnerty and his stick-wielding pals playing on the blocked-off street were all benefiting from the presence of bollards. You're going to hear the word bollard a lot in this story, so it's probably best to define it. A bollard is a thick post embedded deep in a sidewalk meant to prevent bomb-laden trucks from blowing up important buildings. Washington, D.C. has a ton of them. So many you probably don't even notice them anymore. They blend into the scenery like fire hydrants or mailboxes. Unless you're a critic of security measures or unless you have to slalom through them in a wheelchair or you're an urban design aficionado. But each bollard is a highly engineered piece of steel meant to withstand an eight-ton truck barreling at it at 50 miles an hour. The bollards that we're used to today are security devices. That's Vitold Rybczynski, an emeritus professor of urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania and a bollard expert. They're actually quite substantial and they make much more visual impact in the city because they're relatively close together and they're quite big. In the architectural canon, bollards go way back, all the way to Renaissance Rome, Rybczynski explains. They were a traffic control measure to separate pedestrian areas from carriageways, 
Bernini's famous fountain and the Egyptian obelisk in St. Peter's Square are ringed with them. Bollards have been used in the U.S. to help traffic control for years. But it wasn't until after the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing that they began to proliferate here in D.C. Again, Rybczynski. Because the bombing was aimed, obviously, at a federal building, there was a sense that federal workers had to be protected, especially. And so the president issued a directive that all federal buildings had to be protected against truck bombs. And this was just an across-the-board law. It, it, It happened within a week of the bombing, so it wasn't something that people had deeply researched. I'm standing at the corner of Independence Ave and 4th Street Northwest in downtown D.C., I'm looking across the street at the National Air and Space Museum, and they've got some bollards around the building. They're just your basic stainless steel cylinders. But here at the National Museum of the American Indian, there are heavy stone bollards that look like they're maybe made of granite. There are brown steel bollards that look like they're retractable. And then there are these guys. Bollards with a classy copper patina and a basket weave design that seem to go with the motif of the museum. Regardless of what they look like, perimeter security has to be installed around all federal buildings, and that is by law, no argument. Whenever we would question the security experts, you always get to the point where somebody will say something like, well, we can't have one life lost because we didn't do the right thing. And that's such a devastatingly convincing argument that nobody can stand up to it. In addition to being non-negotiable, these devices aren't cheap. $7,500 will get you a basic bollard. At that price, it's hard to know whether they're worth the investment, especially since there's no hard evidence about their efficacy. We have a limited amount of money to spend, and we don't want to spend it solving the last problem. We want to spend it solving the next problem. That's Christine Sohm, director of the Urban Design and Plan Review Division of the National Capital Planning Commission. She spends a lot of time thinking about bollards. The commission is in charge of overseeing planning and development of federal property in the district, and incorporating perimeter security into planning is a must. But bollards aren't the only option. In 2002, NCPC came out with a document we called our Urban Design and Security Plan that was intended to sort of inspire agencies to go beyond the planter or bollard solution and to actually design things around their buildings that fit into the environment and would actually be an improvement. Buildings like the Smithsonian Museums around the Mall or the Washington Monument, they've got a lot of space. And so we were able to do landscape solutions that are actually quite attractive. At the Washington Monument, perimeter security has been integrated into the grounds. Granite landscape walls surrounding the base have been designed to be a comfortable height so people can sit on them. Yet they are tall enough to prevent a truck from reaching the monument. The security is ingeniously invisible. As more federal buildings get upgraded, so too will their security. Instead of an ocean of bollards, D.C. might see perimeter security camouflaged as planting walls or water features or creative landscaping. Again, some. I don't think you'll ever completely eliminate bollards, but you don't want it to be forbidding. We don't want our federal office buildings to be fortresses. And I think that what we're trying now is to make sure that we keep that solution from being the default. But for now, until people who make decisions about security become more design-minded, bollards it is. I'm Lauren Ober. 
If you'd like to see photos of some of the many different kinds of bollards in D.C., you're in luck. We have a handy-dandy slideshow on our website, metroconnection.org. And we're curious, do you know of any well-designed bollards outside a local building? Or do you have a great idea for making bollards a bit more, I don't know, pretty? Send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, will the looming healthcare overhaul mean a redesign for HIV outreach? I've already told my staff, I said, I can't guarantee you that you'll all be here in three years. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week's show is all about design. And before the break, we were focusing on the kind of design we can see all around us here in Washington. Monuments, architecture, you know, that kind of thing. But now we're going to turn to something a little bit different. The design of healthcare. What does that mean exactly? Well, consider this. D.C. has one of the highest rates of HIV in the nation, with nearly 3% of residents infected with the virus. But as the Affordable Care Act takes full effect next year, some organizations that help these residents are struggling to redesign their operations. Because as Jacob Fenston tells us, these organizations believe that while health care reform can be great for people with HIV, the law could also have some unintended side effects. After Ron Simmons learned he had HIV in 1989, he started going to a support group. We had the first support group in the founder's home, and I think it was like 22 of us in his living room. Specifically, it was a group for gay black men who are HIV positive called Us Helping Us. Simmons found camaraderie and what was at the time a rare sense of hope. I feel that I owe that group to being able to live with HIV now for, oh my God, was it 24 years? I'm on medication now, but... I was able to sustain my immune system until the late 90s when indeed they came up with effective medications. Over the years, new drugs and new ways of using those drugs have transformed HIV from a death sentence to a manageable disease. And groups like Us Helping Us have evolved too. Our budget is about um, 1.7 For the past 20 years, Simmons has been president and CEO of Us Helping Us. He's showing me around their offices on Georgia Avenue. We have 14 full-time employees. It's gone from a support group to providing a range of HIV and AIDS services, from testing and prevention to mental health. Currently, those activities are mostly funded through grants from the Centers for Disease Control and the local health department. But that funding structure will likely be changing with the Affordable Care Act. It's going to be a challenging time. I mean, I've already told my staff, I've said that basically the next one to three years are going to be really challenging. I can't guarantee you that you'll all be here in three years. I am very concerned that the tremendous amount of experience we have now in the HIV care system may potentially be lost. Julia Hidalgo is a health policy professor at George Washington University. She's also a consultant, and she's helping groups like us helping us figure out how to adapt to the new health care landscape. She says the problem is that much of the grant funding that keeps them afloat will dry up as many of the support services they currently offer will be shifted to a more coordinated primary care setting. 
not necessarily a bad thing, except Hidalgo says that some groups fill very specific needs. Many of those organizations provide an excellent service to a very specific set of HIV-infected folks in the community, Um, men who have sex with men, transgender populations, racial or ethnic minorities. The D.C. Health Department is working to help HIV-AIDS groups redesign. For one thing, the department's offered grants so organizations can hire consultants like Dr. Hidalgo. We need those organizations. Saul Levin is the D.C. Health Department's interim director. They're the people who truly are out in the community, can really reach out to the populations that they've taken care of throughout this whole epidemic. But we all know in the Affordable Care Act and the changing healthcare delivery system that all of us are going to have to change. Groups that haven't ever had to worry about the complicated world of medical billing, for example, may have to figure out which of their services they can charge to insurance or Medicaid. I feel like I'm moving on to a second career in uh, in healthcare finance to understand the landscape. Adam Tenner is the executive director of Metro Teen AIDS, which provides prevention and other services to young people in D.C. We've looked for many years at becoming a Medicaid provider and it's a it's a not very pretty world inside uh, Medicaid. Reimbursements tend to be low and slow. He says his group is looking at how it can repackage the work it's currently doing. They're also considering expanding in other directions, asking... What are the other health issues that fit within how we do our work that are also broader than HIV? We provide high quality of services, but if there's no money to fund it... Um, so we're, we're, looking, we're exploring every option we possibly can. Some organizations are already shifting focus. Us Helping Us is moving more toward mental health services because it can bill insurance or Medicaid. And for HIV-AIDS groups that provide medical care, the path forward under health reform is much clearer. Don Blanchin is the CEO of Whitman Walker Health, a clinic that specializes in HIV and AIDS. From our perspective, it absolutely should help us financially. He says about 10% of the clinic's patients don't have insurance. Right now, for some portion of that final 10% of our patient base, we're having to raise uh, a lot of money every year to cover the cost of care. So we should get some financial help or relief because some of those individuals now, obviously, we can bill for their care. But it still means an adjustment. It kind of is really a little bit of a culture shock. As more people get health insurance, they may have more options for treatment. So those folks who now are in that group where they're uninsured or underinsured and who come here because they see us as a safety net or they have no other place to go, they now are going to have coverage. And if they don't like the quality of the care and the customer service we provide, they'll have coverage and they'll be able to go to some other health center or some other private practice. D.C. is already further along with health reform than most states. While many are still arguing over whether or not to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, the district already did just months after the law was passed in 2010. Now, about 93 percent of residents have health insurance. But that doesn't mean everyone is getting the treatment they need. According to the D.C. Department of Health, just one in four residents diagnosed with HIV gets the necessary treatment and stays on it long enough to keep the virus under control. I'm Jacob Fenston. This story came to us through WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can find out more about the network by visiting metroconnection.org slash PIN. Uh, 
All right, we're going to head a bit north of D.C. now, up to Gaithersburg, to check out the design of a very special science lab. What sets this lab apart is actually pretty big. It's built for projects too small for the naked eye to see. Matt M. Casey has the story. Before visitors enter the NanoFab facility at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland, they must first don an outfit called a bunny suit. These on the shoes, a couple of gloves. This is the this is the optional face mask. It's personal preference, but the beard bags are just kind of more comfortable. That's Vincent Luciani, the manager of the NanoFab. The full outfit includes a hood, goggles, and plastic overalls. Together, it covers almost every inch of your body. But these outfits aren't meant to protect the people wearing them. Everything that we put on to go in there is actually to protect the lab from you. Most of the bunny suit and all the stuff we're putting out here is to keep your personal particles to yourself. Those personal particles could spell disaster for the work going on inside. Most of the multi-million dollar machines are so sensitive that a misplaced dust speck could spoil an experiment. One dust particle, which can be a hundred microns across, can wipe out an entire circuit. The nano in nanofab stands for nanoscale. Fab stands for fabrication. The researchers here work on structures so tiny that they can't be seen even by the most powerful optical microscope, the kind that you might remember from your high school science class. When working at such a scale, scientists need specialized equipment not only to create their structures, but also to assess them. We have a machine that you'll see in the back that can put down a layer one atom thick, right? And with ultrasonometry, you can detect the presence of that one atom thick layer. To protect machines like that, the lab's safety measures extend far beyond bunny suits. A series of sliding doors divide the 8,000 square foot area. A card logging system allows experimenters to use only those machines on which they've been trained. Then, there's the ventilation system. The entire ceiling is an air output. The entire floor is an air input. So you can't feel it, but this room, all the air in this room gets changed over about five times a minute. So all the air is constantly moving down, so dust particles go straight down. Out in a normal office space or in your house, there's roughly about three-quarters of a million particles per cubic foot. In here, there's a hundred. While the lab itself represents a collection of design challenges, the administrative structure of the lab represents an interesting design choice. The Center for Nanoscale Science and Technology, which houses the nanofab along with other equipment and offices, allows any interested researcher to rent nanofab equipment for an hourly fee. I should stress, it's a user facility, which means we are here available to people to come and use our tool set in order to do this basic mission of uh, facilitating technology, science, commerce. That's Center Director Robert Salata. He says the NanoFab opened in 2006 with the goal to help advance the field of nanoscale science and manufacturing. In terms of the research that's come out, one of our most productive programs has been a program which uh, uses scanning tunneling microscopy to look at um, uh, graphene. The substance, an unusual arrangement of pure carbon, has been considered a miracle material for everything from water filtration to quantum computing. But the nanofab machines used to investigate that material carry such high price tags that it can be difficult for even large companies to justify their purchase. The machines not only are expensive, but they don't last that long. Don't, don't get the picture that they're, 
they're wearing out, but they, they become technologically obsolete because the field is developing so rapidly. The center uses a price structure that rewards those willing to publish their findings. If a company wants to keep its processes private, it's allowed to, but that privacy comes with a higher hourly rate. In the short time since its opening, the lab has gotten very busy. Five years ago, we started with normal business hours of sort of 8.30 to 5, and we've extended it now so that we operate 17 hours a day. If you are a trusted user, that is, you have passed the safety regulations, tests, etc., you're allowed to use the tools 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Salata says researchers often have experiments running in the wee hours of the morning. Usually, those projects were started and left to run late the night before, but sometimes researchers can still be found at work in the lab at 3 a.m., which raises an interesting question about life design. But that's another story. I'm Matt M. Casey. You can learn more about NanoFab and see pictures of some of that pricey equipment scientists use there on our website, metroconnection.org. Here in the D.C. region, we have an internationally acclaimed bastion of design, the National Building Museum, which is featuring a new exhibit about design and eco-friendliness in our schools. Lauren Landau swung by the exhibit and by a D.C. school that's working to get students to go green. Imagine an apartment building equipped for all needs, tastes, and budgets. Accommodation-free on a first-come, first-served basis, extended family occupation encouraged, utilities included, located amidst one acre of private gardens with a gated entry and a garden penthouse on the roof. If that sounds like a sweet setup, don't bother calling your real estate agent, unless you have six legs. That was physical education teacher David Hilmy describing the digs at the Bug Motel on the farm at Walker Jones Education Campus, a preschool through grade 8 school in Northwest. The farm is divided up into five fields, which are cared for by different grade levels. Everything on the farm the kids are involved with. And instead of me having just one club, as it were, I have about 12 or 13 different student groups that I rotate through and they have different responsibilities on the farm. Field one, for example, belongs to the kindergartners and first graders who grow potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, and peppers. Students learn about scientific classifications, organic farming, and how different insects, such as the farm's honeybees, can lend a helping wing. But the farm serves another important purpose. We're kind of in a very ultra-urban, inner-city environment, About 95% of our kids are free, reduced school lunch kids, obviously Title I school. Hilmi says the farm's primary purpose is to grow food, which the kids take home to help feed their families. There's even a kitchen lab where students learn how to cook the food. And the kids aren't the only ones reaping the benefits from the seeds they've sown. People from the local neighborhood can also enjoy the farm's fresh produce. So we have some... Older people living across the street, they'll come over with a plastic bag. They'll do a little bit of work for, you know, 10, 15 minutes here to have a bunch of collard greens or chard, and they'll, they're happy with that. In addition to the farm, the Leeds Silver Certified School also boasts a 27,000-square-foot green roof. 
But as Hilmi explains, design is just the first step in creating a truly green school. What really is required is some training and education. For example, with the green roof, there was no maintenance contract put in place. No one was trained to maintain it. The roof failed. Walker Jones is featured in the new Green Schools exhibit at the National Building Museum. Curator Sarah Levitt says that for many of these schools, going green isn't the challenge. It's staying green. When we talked to one of the architects that came to speak with us about what he does in terms of his green practice at his firm, he said, you know, we build this beautiful green school and then the day it opens, everybody comes in and they use their same toxic chemicals and they are shading our beautiful daylighting windows and the day-to-day green is not really there. Levitt says this is a topic that touches many Americans, even if they don't realize it. 20% of our population spends their day in a K-12 classroom. That's a lot of people at six. 60 million people every day. Um, It's something that we can all relate to as community members, as parents, a concern that we all should have if we don't. So what kind of problems are schools dealing with? Toxic cleaning chemicals, that's certainly one. One of them is the ribbon windows that are the narrow windows that don't open, that don't allow a lot of daylight in the room. They don't allow the teachers to regulate the temperature in the room. One that we've seen, of course, in the last maybe 30 years is asbestos in the classroom. The projects featured in the Green Schools exhibit range from composting programs to solar panels and green building materials to a school in Hawaii that actually has a river running through it. More than 40 schools are featured, including 10 in our region. It would be wonderful if people left the exhibition thinking about what they could do in their own communities and their own schools and really encourage those programs and really see the difference that this kind of thing can make for all of our kids. D.C. resident Lydia Borland and her daughter Layla visited the exhibit on opening day. Layla is only 10 years old, but she will ultimately pursue her education at either Woodrow Wilson High School or School Without Walls Senior High School, the latter of which is included in the Green Schools exhibit. It was very interesting to see that School Without Walls is taking an initiative on being green. So I kind of maybe want to, like, let's say I go to School Without Walls. They probably have a lot of green projects, planting trees and all that stuff after school. So being part of one of those projects would be fun. Sarah Levitt says that the push for green schools often comes from the students themselves and that a lot of these programs empower kids to think about what comes next. Back at Walker Jones Education Campus, David Hilmy is also looking toward the future. What will the world look like tomorrow or even in 50 years? We have no clue. We don't know how businesses will operate. We don't know how governments will operate. The one thing that is true is that we will still be in a threatened environment. And so for me, green living or green education, that should be a habitual, normal part of living. Hilmi says he wants to teach his students how to care for the environment, just as he coaches them on how to take care of their bodies in gym class. Both are personal responsibilities he hopes they will carry into adulthood. I'm Lauren Landau. The National Building Museum's Green Schools exhibit runs through next January. You can learn more about it and watch a video featuring some of our local green schools on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, a designer and activist whose legacy will never go out of fashion. So imagine... She is a former slave who bought her own freedom and made these clothes for some of the city's most prominent women. Extraordinary. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. 
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are talking design. So far this hour, we've learned the secrets behind one of the district's most ubiquitous architectural features. We've checked out innovations designed to get students to go green. And in just a bit, we'll hear about the first ever international design festival to be held right here in Washington, D.C. First, though, we're going to tip our hat to a master of design from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a master of clothing design who created couture for the creme de la creme of Washington society, including the First Lady of the United States. Listen to me. I never have, nor never will, send you forward without you looking your most extraordinary best. After all, you represent me as well. This is a scene from Mary T. and Lizzie Kay, the world premiere play now running at Arena Stage in southwest D.C. Imagine for yourself. Box pleats of gold taffeta, your bodice side drapes and back tabs in woven gold and copper stripes brocade. And this here is our designer extraordinaire, Lizzie Kay, a.k.a. Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley, the personal dressmaker to Mary Todd Lincoln. The dress is going to be beautiful. Already is, even with pins holding it together. The play explores the relationship these women developed during Mrs. Lincoln's time in the White House. And as playwright and director Taswell Thompson points out, the two made for a rather unlikely pair. There was something so compelling and so complex and so unbelievable that during the 1860s, during the Civil War, that there would be this close and unique friendship between a former slave and the first lady of the land. Indeed, Elizabeth Keckley was born a slave in 1818 in Dinwiddie, Virginia. In 1852, she bought her and her son's freedom for $1,200. Eventually, she made her way to D.C., where she opened her own dressmaking business. A thriving business. She made clothes for the top women of society in D.C., including Mrs. Ulysses S. Grant and Mrs. Robert E. Lee. But in 1861, when Keckley met Mrs. Abraham Lincoln, the seamstress became the sole designer and creator of the first lady's wardrobe. And you can see an item from this wardrobe. She made this dress for Mrs. Lincoln. We believe it was worn in the winter social season, 1861-1862. At the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, where Lisa Kathleen Grady, curator of women's political history, can tell you all about it. It's purple velvet, and it's really a skirt with two bodices. So there is a daytime bodice with a higher neck, longer sleeves. It's got beautiful mother-of-pearl buttons up the front, a little lace collar. And then as you're getting ready for evening, you can put on an evening bodice, which has a much lower neck, shorter sleeves. It seems to show a lot of skin. This is popular at the time, but Mary Lincoln was fond of a low-cut top. And there's a story that one time Mrs. Lincoln was wearing a dress with a low-cut bodice and a long train. And her husband remarked that she looked very nice, but the cat might be better if there was more of the tail up top. Again, though, you have to remember, Elizabeth Keckley was more than just Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker. She was also her friend. You know, let's not kid ourselves that it's an equal relationship, but it's a very intimate thing to create clothes for somebody. And she had a relationship with the president and his children and frequently would, you know, brush Mr. Lincoln's hair. He called her Miss Elizabeth and would ask her to smooth down his bristles. 
Clearly, the Lincolns cared for Keckley, and they donated generously when, in 1862, she reached out to struggling former slaves by founding the Contraband Relief Association. In doing so, she was actually joining a network of highly educated black women doing the same kind of thing. Even though you probably didn't hear a lot about it because they were still black women and they were still not talked about prominently, this was a whole movement of reintegrating a whole new people into the society. Sylvia Robinson runs the Emergency Community Arts Collective, a nonprofit located in a big brick building at 733 Euclid Street Northwest. It's actually the same building that once housed the National Association for the Relief of Destitute Colored Women and Children, which Elizabeth Keckley helped found in 1863. And that organization was responsible for taking women and children off the street, and it would house them and clothe them and educate them. But here's where our story takes an unfortunate twist. Despite Keckley's many successes, her liberation from slavery, her social activism, her position as private dressmaker to the First Lady of the United States. It's my understanding that she died penniless? She did. Here's what happened. It's 1867, okay, and the now-widowed Mary Todd Lincoln is hoping to raise some money. She believes that she's impoverished, and she's trying to raise money to take care of herself and, and her family. And so, says Smithsonian curator Lisa Kathleen Grady, Mrs. Lincoln asks Mrs. Keckley to join her on a trip to New York so they can secretly sell some of her old dresses. Mrs. Keckley was sort of a go-between with these brokers that Mary Lincoln was trying to engage to sell clothing. But word of the endeavor got out, and Mrs. Lincoln was severely criticized for A, trying to unload her possessions, and B, trying to do it on the sly. In fact, the criticism was so harsh that the whole affair eventually earned a nickname. The old clothes scandal, and it actually prompts Mrs. Keckley to write her memoir. Titled Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. Because she's hoping to paint Mrs. Lincoln in a better light. She feels Mary Lincoln's misunderstood. Basically, Keckley has the kindest of intentions, but once her book comes out... It's viewed as a ruthless, indiscreet tell-all that's anything but kind. It actually generated more bad publicity for Mary Lincoln, and Mary Lincoln never spoke to her again. She felt betrayed by someone that she had called her dearest friend. After the book, Keckley's clientele basically vanished. She managed to land a university teaching gig and organize a fashion exhibit at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. But it wasn't long before she found herself destitute. So she returned to Washington, D.C. and took refuge at, of all places, the National Association for the Relief of Destitute Colored Women and Children. And in 1907, that's where she died. That is so tragic. It's, it's very sad. It's really very sad. But despite that sad ending, says Lisa Kathleen Grady, Nothing can take away the fact that this woman of incredible determination purchased her own freedom and that of her son and established an incredible business in Washington, D.C., became a philanthropist and the confidant of the First Lady of the United States. That's an incredible move from being a slave in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Which is why, back at Arena Stage, Samara Lookman-Harris, the actress portraying Elizabeth Keckley and Mary T. and Lizzie Kay, says she feels so honored to be playing this role. She has an extremely intrepid spirit. She never gives up. She climbed her way out of slavery to become a superstar. I just, I don't know how you do that. 
But somehow, Mrs. Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley did it all, weaving together strength, determination, and prodigious talent to fashion a truly extraordinary life. Mary T. and Lizzie Kay runs through April 28th at Arena Stage. To see photos from the production, along with sketches of some of the costumes, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story in today's design show is about the people who come up with new ways of thinking about everyday objects like lamps or chairs. It's a field called industrial design, and you can attend shows dedicated to this specialty every year in places like Berlin, Vancouver, Dubai, and New York. Well, we can now add D.C. to that list. This year marks the first ever Washington, D.C. International Design Festival at Artisphere in Roslyn, Virginia. The festival kicked off about a month ago and continues through the middle of May. It's an assortment of film screenings, panel discussions, and an ongoing exhibit of the latest and greatest in industrial design from all over the world. Emily Berman takes us to Artisphere to learn more about bringing international design to Washington, D.C. If you want to know what the 21st century looks like, you have come to the right place. So this is the plume sofa designed by the Borlek brothers. Douglas Burton and I are sitting on a couch that looks like a cherry jelly bean. Burton is the curator of this exhibit and the owner of Apartment Zero, an online boutique that sells the latest in home furnishings. This sofa is one of his favorite pieces in the show. It's really one large piece of molded foam with a fabric stretched over it. It floats so beautifully off the ground. Like most of the things he selected, it's a new take on an everyday object. That's what industrial design is, Burton explains, taking something we use and making it more efficient and ideally more beautiful. Take lighting, for example. There's a lamp and then there's the Scott Franklin wet lamp. And at first, when you look at them, they almost look like a chemical experiment. There are two glass containers that look like clear water balloons. In one glass, there's a skinny light bulb submerged in salt water. That's connected with a wire to the other glass, where you see a metal rod sitting just above the water line. So as you push this metal rod into the water, it creates immediately an electrical current. So the salt acts as a conductor. The deeper you push this rod into the water, the brighter the light gets. And it turns this this ordinary light bulb into a piece of art. Annie Grower is a D.C.-based design writer and critic. The lamp impressed her because it changes the way we think about water and electricity. It forces us a little further into scientific contemplation. But her favorite object and I stared at it for a really long time because I don't quite still know how it works, is the Dyson bladeless fan. It costs under $300, and it blows like a bear. Dyson, of Dyson Vacuums, redesigned a fan to work without blades. It looks like a large magnifying glass. So there's this big circle on kind of a cylindrical base, and it's fascinating. It'll be a conversation piece at your next party. It doesn't look like anything you'd expect in the historic homes of Washington, D.C., but, Burton says, our super traditional reputation is quite outdated. Even though Washington is a traditional city, it has really dramatically changed since when I moved here in 1997. I have seen incredible changes in architecture, 
in interior design, in the type of products that people are buying. And you have people that love design just like you have people that love fashion. And some of our design lovers happen to be design makers as well. There are seven locals represented in the show. One of them is Polygraph Creative, which makes plastic covers for outlets. The covers are shaped like Band-Aids, signaling to kids that they shouldn't stick something in the socket because it'll hurt. Burton also showcases an office chair designed by Jeffrey Jenkins, who works out of Northern Virginia. We all know that there are thousands of task chairs on the market. Noel, Herman Miller. This, for example, just has a completely different way of looking at ergonomics. Just across the gallery, there's another chair on view. But what you wouldn't necessarily know is that this completely folds flat and it is bent into this three-dimensional shape, which can actually then hold up to 300 pounds. And then there are more conceptual pieces, like two ceramic birdhouses designed to look like houses of prayer. One of the birdhouses is a Christian church and the other one is a Muslim mosque. The message here is birds do not distinguish what religion they are interested in when it comes to finding their own home to nest in. They couldn't care less. There are more than 150 pieces in the exhibit, and the common thread among them isn't always clear. You are seeing product designers, furniture designers, industrial designers doing things that are super minimal, super whimsical, over the top. What's happening now is probably a mix of every single style that we've ever seen in industrial design. It's being chewed up, mixed up, and spit out in a whole new way. And even though it'll take another 50 years, Burton says, before we can say exactly what defined the style of this decade, bringing a design festival here to the nation's capital lets Washingtonians get in on that conversation. I'm Emily Berman. The Washington, D.C. International Design Festival runs through May 19th at Artisphere. For a list of festival events and to see photos of some of the pieces mentioned in the story, visit our website, metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brentwood, Maryland, and D.C.'s DuPont Park. My name is Anika Harrison. I am 35 years old, and I live here in Brentwood, Maryland. Brentwood, Maryland is located between Mount Rainier, Maryland, and North Brentwood, Maryland. We go from um, Bladensburg Road all the way down to... Allison Street, and then from 34th Street down to Volta. We have a variety of homes in Brentwood. Um, A lot of the homes here are, I guess, a cottage-style house. Um, We have some Cape Cod-type houses. We have this thing now going on in Brentwood where we're having developers come into town and either properties that were abandoned due to floor closure or, you know, we're burnt down for a reason. They're building new homes. So we have a lot of new home building going on in Brentwood as well. 
The demographics have changed a little bit. When we moved here, I would say that it was a working class neighborhood. Um, it's still somewhat of a working class neighborhood, but moving more to middle class. So I see that change with just the people that are moving into the town. Um, it's an art district now. We're part of the Gateway Arts District, and there's development going on and things of that nature happening that we've never had before. My favorite thing about living in Brentwood is that I can go to the city and I could have fun and, you know, go out and see things and then I can come back to a nice, quiet neighborhood. <laughs> That's my absolute favorite thing about Brentwood. My name is Barbara D. Morgan and the neighborhood that I live is considered DuPont Park and for tax purposes they have us as Hillcrest. We run from Eli Place all the way over to Pennsylvania Avenue down to Fairlawn which is right there at just below the railroad track there and all the way up to uh, I would say Texas Avenue. We have some of the most gorgeous trees and so forth. Uh, in this community. And as you ride through, we have beautiful homes over here. It's unfortunate that our houses are not equated with the houses price-wise uh, in Ward uh, 4 or 3. But for me and some of us, I have been here. I wouldn't take anything for living in Southeast. We have deer, which is in the park, and you see those and about three, two a month, about two months or three months ago, I saw two fox. To me, it's the best country in city living. We heard from Anika Harrison in Brentwood and Barbara Morgan in DuPont Park. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, just send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, and Lauren Landau, along with reporters Lauren Ober and Matt M. Casey. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Lauren Landau, Robbie Feinberg, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door -door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show on energy. We'll visit local communities at the epicenter of fracking and uranium mining debates in our region. We'll talk with D.C. centenarians about the energy involved in living a long, healthy life. And we'll consider how a neighborhood's energy changes when new residents come in. I do feel that they don't want me here. And I have been here since 94. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.